It's Dr. Stu's podcast at drstuespodcast.com from the seldom used Studio D at CRN, the cable radio network. Dr. Stuart Fishbein, I'm Brian Whitman. Thanks for joining us. Podcast number 71. That's D as in Dr. Stu, is that correct? That's right. D as in Dr. Stu, 71 as in one after 70. Right. And one right before 72. And of course, the music, uh, no doubt, if you've been to the movie theater, uh, the second half of 2014 or beginning into 2015, you have seen Interstellar. Now, Dr. Stu, you have seen it seven times? Yeah, I lost count at seven. (laughs) <laughs> Big pause from Brian. Yeah, yes, I've I, seen that movie seven times. I've seen it on IMAX twice, and I've seen it with each one of my kids separately because uh, when they had availability to do it, it moves me. It's a science fiction film, but there's great character development in it for me and the uh, father-daughter story. You know, as you know, I have this strong relationship with my daughter, so any movie that has a really good father-daughter story, um, you know, sort of grabs me and yeah part of me does believe in the movie they talk about the the main character cooper being born 40 years too early or 40 years too late Mm. and sort of i sometimes feel that way too um do you feel like you were born early or late either one oh either one i would have liked to have been doing what i'm doing 40 years ago would have been a lot less regulated and a lot uh it would have been a lot easier to do what i'm doing then than now i mean i was it was a different era the look at the 70s was a different year in California. There was no traffic on the freeways. It was you could play frisbee on the beach. Uh, you could have a barbecue on the beach. You could use plastic bags if you wanted them. Yeah, that's whatever right. Whatever light, whatever light bulb you wanted. You know, you didn't have to wear a helmet when you hey, rode a you bike. Know, uh, the toilet didn't matter what kind of low flush that's toilet correct. you had. No, but you know it's interesting. So, so I'm just saying that. Or 40 years from now, uh, I'm not sure where we'll be 40 years from now. But uh, you know, the idea of space exploration and stuff has always been exciting for me. We're living in a time right now where. America sort of has dropped off the map yep. as far as manned space exploration, and, and that you, bothers me a little bit, too. You were a kid, a little boy in Minnesota when putting a man on the moon was the national dialogue. Correct, all through the 60s, and then uh, they landed on the moon, actually, the day before my birthday in 1969, and uh, they went. They walked on the moon on July 20th, 1969, but it was actually the 21st, which is my birthday, on Greenwich Mean Time, uh, but they, you know, we, in America, we used our own time. Mm. But that's when they were walking on the moon. And yeah, it, was, it affected me. I remember one of my first books I ever read was a, was a, a colored page book with large print that said, So You Will Go to the Moon, was what it was called. And I still remember it. And it showed guys bouncing, you know, because of the gravity and all that stuff. And they showed all these sorts of things. And that was very exciting for me. So the, the movie has moved me. I want to have the music. I mean, Thor has been great. Uh, Earth to Asgard was a great theme song for a while. But it did as well for 69 podcasts. We're it going to well. uh, hopefully uh, do this for the next 69. Let me, and we will. Let me ask you something, Dr. Stu. Uh, you talked uh, um, you know, a moment ago, uh, uh, talk about the movie Interstellar character, you know, born 40 years too early or 40 years too late. And there is, and this is, this has come up in the past. Uh, I describe it not, not in a negative way. There is a side of you uh, as a professional, as a doctor, that laments the way it used to be, that laments the way, the, the laments the fact that medicine is not practiced as it used to be practiced. So, so I will, I, I will, a couple of things, an observation and then a question. The observation is obviously 
the way doctors are viewed in our society, I think of Marcus Welby, we've used him as sort of a flashpoint in the past for conversations, the way the patient doctor, sort of the time doctors had, the sort of, you know, all of that, it, that's gone. You know, now with the HMO, they've got seven minutes for you, and if you can diagnose you in seven minutes, you know, and question, when you talk to colleagues or in your lifetime, I'm sure many of them who are of that time have in fact passed on, but uh, back in the day when you would converse with doctors who have now since retired or now since passed away, uh, wow, what a very different picture their experiences paint of practicing medicine than, uh, than, a, than a current day doctor or the experiences of a young person in residence now, what their experiences will be like compared to half a century ago. My gosh, it's it's. It's it's almost probably for those of you who practice unrecognizable. Yeah, it is. I mean, listen, there's been some great technological advances over the last 40 years and you can't discount those. But what I'm talking about is I lament the era when the doctor was captain of the ship and uh, he was a shepherd and not sheep. We've talked about this many times. I think that they are training people in medical school residency now to come out to be sheep and not shepherd. Shepherds don't want to be micromanaged in every aspect of their lives. And I think that physicians at this point, those of us who experienced the 70s or 80s or 90s, we, we remember what it was like to be running our own show and be in charge and making decisions and being responsible for them and not having to get permission from some cubicle worker in Connecticut in order to do something and then to being told afterwards that, that, oh, the paperwork was wrong and now we're not paying you because you didn't get prior authorization, blah, 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 blah. So... Those the years and then all the bean counting and the coding. It used to be people came to our office, they had a service, they paid us as they checked out. You know, now they come to your office, they may have a ten dollar copay. It may take you gobs of paperwork and six months to get paid for the thirty eight dollar office visit. And uh, then at the end of the year, the insurance couple will say they overpaid us, and they they're going to you need to send them a check back. And so you end up being a slave to paperwork, a slave to regulation, a slave to micromanaging. A slave, a hot, doctors used to be running the hospitals. Now doctors are, um, according to the people who run hospitals, sort of an unfortunate cog in the wheel. They're necessary, but they tend to be getting in the way of us uh, um, uh, maximizing our profit and doing those things in the hospital. And it's just not, that's my take. Uh, I, miss, I miss the way it was when I first started in the, in the mid-80s. So, Dr. Stu, the bureaucracy, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, it sounds to me, I'll ask you, I'll... I'll make it a question uh has the current bureaucracy has it disillusioned the medical workers the doctors or the patients more is there greater frustration uh with the current system on the part of the professionals or the patients who are seeking the treatment or is it evenly distributed you know it's hard for me to speak for in broad terms brian about that i can only speak to what i see day to day and i think that the frustration in people like me who have been around long enough uh, is higher. There's no question about it. Uh, I think younger physicians may have, this is all they've ever known. I don't think you're frustrated as much when it's all you've ever known. I think for people who have insurance that they've had to seek out themselves or pay for, um, that's probably much more frustrating for them. For people who get their insurance through their employer uh, or through a government agency or Medicare or whatever, I, I don't know that it's significantly changed for them. They're, maybe their co-pays are higher and they grumble about that. Maybe their deductibles are higher and they grumble about that, but I'm not sure that they still can't get access. I do know for a fact that, that some people obviously were not able to uh, like their doctor and keep their doctor and because some people are not on the plans and therefore 
people with a fixed income can't really be spending money out of pocket when they're already spending money for the insurance policy that they've been given. So they have to go off and, and change doctors. And after 20 years with somebody, that's not an easy thing to do. So I think there is that frustration. Clearly, some people are getting insurance that didn't have it before, but I'm not sure that they understand that what they got isn't that necessarily a good, isn't, isn't going to work that well. President Obama, in his State of the Union address that happened recently, as you hear Dr. Stu's podcast here, number 71, uh, the president boasted that we uh, live in a country where there are more insured Americans than ever before. So that is certainly no doubt becoming a uh, uh, a talking point, if you will. Yeah, uh, but you know, look, you know that, that everything that comes out of the guy's mouth is ne- not necessarily the truth or it's, it's mincing words just because there may be more insured people. And I'm not even sure that that's true. doesn't mean that there are more people who have health care. Uh, just because you have insurance doesn't mean you have access to care. It may mean you're delayed care. It may mean your care is rationed. Um, you know, I do want to do a podcast in the near future where we actually don't talk about Obamacare. But, <laughs> but, well, but that, okay, uh, that would be, I would do that. Yeah, with it you, seems yeah. like it comes up a lot. Because well, it does. It's, it's I mean, look, news. it's a fact of life here. But he says things like that. I mean, why would I believe anybody, anything out of uh, the man's mouth regarding health care when it was given four Pinocchios and ranked the lie of the year about if you like your insurance, you can keep your insurance. If right. you like your doctor, you can, you can keep, keep your doctor. You can keep your doctor, right, yeah. And he said that, and after we saw what Jonathan Gruber had to say, and I don't even know if Jonathan Gruber's stuff had come out by the time we did our last it podcast. It had not come out. We'll have to do a whole podcast on Jonathan Gruber. Um, for those of you who don't know who Jonathan Gruber is, shame on you. Yeah, Jonathan right, Gruber, look him up. one of the so-called architects of Obamacare. Yeah, he said it was basically we had to, we had to lie and fool things so we could, because uh, of the stupidity of the American people, we you know, we can't tell him the truth and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and, and so it was obvious that this stuff was a lie when he said it. And so when he says something like we have more insured, I mean, he said we're safer now. He said uh, he said that uh, we're, we're controlling ISIS. I, I mean, does anybody really believe that we're controlling ISIS? Dr. Stu's podcast here. Uh, you know, we note uh, our, our new theme song here for uh, Podcast 71. You heard it last time on uh, Milestone Podcast number 70. We talked about the movie Interstellar and sort of dealt a moment ago uh, with the passage of time. So of in a, on a grander scale, 40 years, right? That's two generations. Uh, but no doubt, as you've been enjoying Dr. Stu's podcast, uh, we have crossed from 2014 into 2015. So the passage of time is noted once again, this time into a brand new year, a couple of months into 2015. But uh, you wrote an interesting piece, Dr. Stu, looking back on 2014 and uh, sort of... Yeah, I posted, I posted this on my Facebook page. Actually, it, the link is it's on my blog. And it was sort of a year in review of 2014, some of the things that happened, some of the things we got looked forward to. And then I also did my, uh, I wanted to present my statistics of, of the deliveries that I did. And, and so you're going to ask me some questions about that, I guess. Yeah, I want to talk about that. And if you want to check this out for yourself again, of course, you can go to Dr. Stu's Facebook page and you can like the Facebook page and it's right there. And of course, uh, you want to subscribe on iTunes so you never miss Dr. Stu's podcast. Let's talk about 2014 and let's talk about some of the numbers from 2014. And then we'll talk in a moment about uh, about uh, the effort, because of course, the effort to to have the national international dialogue conversation about out of hospital birthing, about home birthing uh, continues on. There are certainly challenges, political challenges, societal challenges to the acceptance of the concept. And, uh, and, and we'll explore that in, in a moment. Uh, how, as you, as you look back on 2014, is it uh, 48 total you cared for? Yeah, there was, there was 48 women that I was wow. directly responsible for their care. It doesn't count people that I might have gone to their birth at the last minute, uh, called by a midwife, that sort of thing. But 48 women came into care 
Five of them were transferred out of care uh, prior to labor for uh, medical reasons that developed uh, things like cholestasis of pregnancy or uh, premature rupture of membranes, preterm labor, that sort of thing. And that means they went to the hospital, right? They went to uh, a colleague and they were delivered with an uh, obstetrician in a hospital. Interesting. Uh, right. So 43 deliveries. Uh, and uh, these numbers, when you look at them now, obviously you're a doctor. You wrote this up. This is a report. This is great how you this is a basically a Dr. Stu year in review uh, for for yeah, it's, just, it's called it's statistics. It's, uh, you know, I think that interestingly enough, as a when I was a hospital based obstetrician, I didn't keep any track of any of the, this stuff. You know, I mean, the hospital supposedly kept track of my cesarean section rate, but they, I didn't keep track of, you know, the types of deliveries I did. I didn't keep a log book. You know, I have no clue as to how many deliveries I did as a practicing obstetrician when I was on staff well, at hospitals. Were you not motivated to keep a log? or that, That's interesting. Yeah, you know, I just, yeah. it was not something that we did. This is a thing I, I acquired from the midwives. Uh, they keep track of these things. And uh, uh, midwives report this to the... Uh, Midwives Alliance of North America or MANA so that they can report these statistics nationwide. I don't get to do that before because I'm not a midwife, so I don't they don't want me. I mean, the things I do are sort of outside right. the typical midwifery care. In the uh, for folks who will follow along, we'll go to the Facebook page and they'll and they'll come across the, uh, 20... it's on the blog. Yeah, the, click click on that. That takes you to the blog. Right for the 2014 birthing instincts uh, statistics. Uh, identify if you can for benefit of our listeners uh, one or two of the trends that might be obvious from looking at this. <laughs> okay, well the uh, you know obviously a breach is something that I become a strong advocate about breach vaginal delivery. And, and the incidence of breach delivery in the general population is 3%. Mm. And of my 43 deliveries, I think that there were 16. Yeah, it looks like that, doesn't uh, it? Is that what I said? Yeah, right up here. Yeah, uh, 16 breaches, right. Wow. So, so that percentage-wise, that number would be... Uh, about 30, 32%. Exponentially higher than you'd <laughs> see, right? I mean, oh, really, right? Yeah, actually, well, it's a, actually it says 14 breaches. Yeah, there were 14 uh, vaginal breach deliveries, so the 14 out of 43 is about 32%. Right? Yeah, the mainstream medical community would look at that and think what? He's crazy. Right. They would say, first of all, he's crazy to be doing breach deliveries. He's crazy to be even crazier to be doing them at home. And my comment to that would be that that's pejorative, that is ignorant, that doing breach delivery is something they should be doing, and I would tell them that they are the ones that are being unethical, that they are the ones that are being uh, inappropriate uh, in their medical care. If they don't know how to do breach delivery, then their obligation is one of two things. Either refer them for a consultation to someone who does, or go out and get trained. Uh, If you didn't get trained in residency program, take a month or two, go off to Germany, uh, learn uh, the art of breach delivery. That's what makes you an obstetrician. Doing cesarean sections does not make you an obstetrician. Uh, doing forcep deliveries makes you an obstetrician. Doing being able to turn a baby with an external version, or even uh, reaching up and pulling out a second twin breach, those are the things that make you a obstetrician. Uh, as far as the home birth thing, I would go. I, I would say that home birth is a reasonable choice. And despite some literature to the contrary, which has been refuted. There's plenty of literature that shows that it's a safe and uh, a reasonable choice. You look at what Britain has done in the past uh, few months, is they have put out a notice that says that they recommend that women of low risk give birth at home. And this is their their National Health Service making that recommendation. Mm. Now, are they idiots? Are they uh, are they 
um, uninformed. They're not uninformed. Right. Uh, there is a reason that breech delivery is a reasonable choice for some. And for those people that say it's always the wrong choice, then they're being very narrow-minded and very uh, they're using cognitive dissonance to dis- to diselect the uh, information they choose not to they, they choose to ignore because it because it, it bothers them because it doesn't fit with the model by which they care for people. Doctor Stu, I mentioned a moment ago that uh, we're going to touch on here in 2015. Now our second podcast of the brand new year, podcast number 71. As you look back on 2014, and uh, of course the dozens and dozens of podcasts uh, that you and I have hosted together, the conversation, the national dialogue, the international dialogue uh, continues. It goes on. There is this effort, uh, no doubt. Uh, you did it eloquently a moment ago to sort of persuade people in the medical community to be more open to the concept of birthing outside of a hospital, uh, if not recommending it, as you said, uh, in Britain they're doing. So so if you looked at the scoreboard, if you looked at sort of the, if you looked at the trend, how was 2014 tackle it on the political side? How was it in, term, uh, in terms of being a year for persuasion for advancing and furthering the dialogue about this choice, this option that women uh, have for their babies. Okay. Well, I, and I, I, I'll get that in one second. I sure. just want to finish about the breach delivery. Listen, ideally, uh, breach deliveries could be done easily in a hospital, and they may even be safer in a hospital, all things being equal. The problem is it's twofold. One is no one in the hospital is doing breach deliveries, and second of all, even if they were, all things aren't equal. Because the hospital doesn't allow women uh, the option of of mammalian birth, of true mammalian birth, which is to be left alone, unfettered, untethered to anything, uh, not interrupted, uh, that sort of thing. It does, so the success rate of every aspect of vaginal delivery is better at home than in the hospital. And if ultimately the goal is to have successful vaginal births and lower the C-section rate, then truthfully, how can you say that home birth is a terrible option when, whether it's VBAC, whether it's breach, whether it's twins, uh, whether it's a head-first mama having her first baby, the likelihood that you're going to deliver vaginally is, is significantly increased when you give birth at home. Okay, so your question about what happened? How did 2014 go? Yeah, it, well, it, it, I politically think, even, politically in terms of sort of furthering the dialogue because, you know, the concept of birthing outside of the hospital, of giving birth outside the hospital is to some, the concept is so foreign. Well, it's been growing. Um, it, it, there, there are different uh, statistics about what it's growing. It's still a very small percentage of the birthing world. It's probably about one to one and a half percent of births in the United States, but it grew about 29% in the last couple of years. Um there has been some legislative advances in some states, maybe some regresses in some states. Uh, I know that uh, Maryland is considering uh, licensing midwives for the first time. They, they, right now it's illegal for a midwife to practice in Maryland um, at doing home birth. Uh, but I was uh, asked and uh, honored to go and speak in front of uh, a committee of the Maryland legislature mm. earlier in 2014. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that they heard what I had to say. They seemed very attentive, and I got pretty good feedback about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in January of 2014, Assembly Bill 1308 here in California went into effect. We spoke about that a great deal here on the podcast. And that uh, bill allows midwives to practice independently without the need for physician supervision. It does, however, it was a trade-off. It does restrict midwives in that it is now illegal in California for a licensed midwife uh, 
uh, to assist a woman with a breach, a twin delivery, or any baby born before 37 weeks or after 42 weeks. Can we take a moment to explore this? AB uh, 1308, uh, now a year, uh, basically it's been, uh, it's been around, you know, implemented in uh, over a year now. Uh, practically, you know, practically, uh, the midwife community uh, is... Mixed. Yeah. They're I'm mixed. Yeah. I mean, it, it, is, it is an advantage to, to many midwives to not have to seek approval uh, or have a supervisor it doesn't hasn't necessarily changed things in certain communities. I know there's a community in uh, uh, no, just north of uh, once well, in, in Central California uh-huh. that uh, if a midwife refers a woman to a maternal fetal medicine group for an ultrasound or a radiology group for an ultrasound, they won't do it. And that's probably a violation of the law. But they're still being stubborn about doing that. And that uh, reluctance was not anticipated. Oh, right. it probably was anticipated. Was it? Okay. But you'd, you'd think that now that midwives are independent practitioners, they have the right to refer, they have the right to prescribe. And the problem is, is if they, people who are they're referring to will not see them, yeah. that's a problem. Of course. Um, secondly, there is a, um, you know, the fact that they can't do breach deliveries is probably a loss. Right. Because there were many midwives who knew how, not a lot, but, but many, and- since there's nobody doing them in the hospitals, do- very few doctors are doing them. This made one less choice for women to breach to, li- uh, to have a breech baby. So as as we lean ahead into 2015, as we move forward, uh, sort of into the new year, Doctor Stu, are there legislative recipes or proposals that might be coming down uh, through the pipeline to sort of remedy some of the practical hurdles that have been uh, that have been revealed post 1308? Well, the biggest problem, Brian, with the new law, uh, Assembly Bill 1308 here in California, is the 37 to 42 week limitation. Uh, many women don't necessarily follow the textbook and their dates may be a little bit off or they may go beyond 42 weeks, perfectly normal testing, absolutely no reason to be induced. And these women are now faced with a choice of doing a delivery uh, without their midwife or going into the hospital and getting induced. Or on rare occasions, they can. Con- some people in Southern California have contacted me and I, because I'm not bound by Assembly Bill 13, I can take care of a woman at 42 weeks and one day or 36 weeks and five days or 36 weeks and six days. It's a tragedy uh, of the law that this is part of the law. It's not part of the negotiated regulations, which is a process that's going on now mm-hmm. to determine what they what will need consultation and what won't. Ultimately, in order to change that part of the law, the law needs to be, re- you know, it needs to be rewritten, that whole process. And that took years. So it's not something that's likely to come down in the near future. But I do want to make sure that people understand that if you have a client that's become, getting close to 42 weeks, there are, hopefully, will be more and more options as other physicians. There's another physician now in the Sacramento area doing home birthing, mm. and she can also take on these people at 42 weeks in one day. Or if they're 36 weeks and six days and ruptured their membranes, then maybe she can be involved in their care uh, along with the team of midwives that had been taking care of her. That referring for induction to the hospital isn't the only option. It's likely the the most common option simply because there aren't a lot of doctors like doctor uh, up in Sacramento or myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And isn't it interesting because uh, 
you have told many stories, uh, literally about uh, you know being the only the only one. You know, we 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 spoke up. Uh, Last year in 2014, I guess uh, maybe it was sometime in the summertime about, uh, you know, you came back from that trip. You you had been on a trip and you came back and here was uh, this couple and they went into labor and you found yourself uh, that there was literally no one to treat. There was no one to treat uh, this person. And and this is to think in now 2015 in America, in the free world, in the Western world, that would be a reality is – is so otherworldly, you know, it's so otherworldly. Yeah, especially when it's a, when it, again, even though maybe mainstream medical literature the, and the and the wonderful gentlemen out of Cornell who think that home birth is a, a, a horror, um, it is a reasonable choice. And the fact that there are so few people willing to do it, that even when, like I, you might have just mentioned this, when I go on vacation, I when, did, I, yeah. when I go out of town uh, and a preach goes into labor, she ends up with a cesarean because I have nobody to back me up. I have to admit, I did have dinner with a, a local physician this past week. I took him to a Kings game. Uh-huh. We lost, <laughs> as usual, <laughs> this year. Hey, don't be down and, on your team. Two and, years in a row, they gave you a championship. And, uh, Come on. And um, uh, he's thinking about coming to some bursts with me, and that's the first big step in getting somebody to mm. be trained to do this because it really is, quite frankly, other than the fact that my, my only detriment is that I'm on call all the time, I love what I'm doing. And I think you know that I love what I'm doing. I do know that. Yeah, I've, I've I, look at I've I've delivered over thirty breaches in the last three four years. Mm. All right, at home, that's thirty families, thirty mothers, thirty babies whose future life has been altered significantly in a positive way. Mm-hmm. That didn't have to have a cesarean section. Didn't have to deal with the recovery from a cesarean section. Their baby didn't have to deal with the separation or the cord clamping or maybe the long term down the road the increased risks of uh, autoimmune disorders or allergies or asthma because they were able to have a vaginal delivery in the privacy of a birthing center or their own home. Uh, Those people's lives will be changed forever. And, you know, there's a trickle-down effect. They will tell other people. Some people will think they're crazy. But every now and then there'll be somebody that hears that story that will contact a midwife or contact them. That's why the movement is growing. It's It's not growing because people are crazy and there's increased crazy people. It's growing partly because there's a dissatisfaction with the hospital model, and it's growing partly because people understand that there's an advantage to being born in a, in a setting of uh, love and, and respect in a home. You mentioned, uh, Dr. Stu, a moment ago, C-sections. And as we look back here on 2014 and your birthing instinct statistics, uh, what did that uh, cesarean rate, how did that look? What did that look like? Well, you know, I, again, I had... Um, 43 people went into labor with me. 39 were successful. I think that's 93% success rate. Hmm. Um, there were, I think I had four transports, one delivered vaginally uh, with a vacuum, uh, thanks to do- lovely Dr. Wu in Glendale, California. And the other three were cesarean sections. So two, is that a 7%? That rate is 7%? I had a 7% cesarean section rate. And two of the cesarean sections were breaches that were in labor that if they would have had the option of an epidural and Pitocin, uh-huh. maybe one or both of them might have still delivered vaginally, which would have lowered the rate even further. I see. But when you think about it, I had 14 breech deliveries. I think I had four sets of twins. That's 18. I had um, uh, eight V-backs. Okay. So you add that all up, that's 24, 24 women out of my 43, which is more than half. 
in most practices in Southern California, all of them would have had cesarean sections. Wow. So you view that, no doubt. I and mean, I had three. I, I see you, and uh, obviously this is a podcast here, an audio medium. Folks don't see you, but 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 uh, you relay this information with a degree of pride that I can see on your face. Yeah, pride and, and, and sort of a frustration, too, because right. because there are people who are talented who could do this sort of thing, but are, are sort of, you know, obviously it's not the model by which they care to practice. They're not they don't feel comfortable not having a, a newborn intensive care unit down the down the hall and yeah. an anesthesiologist in the call room. I mean, they feel more comfortable with that. And I understand that. But ultimately, if you pick your patients properly and you all labor to progress normally, you generally or almost never will you see a sudden deterioration that results in the need for a crash cesarean section. You know, you mentioned uh, a moment ago, you used the word comfort two or three times there. That is, uh, I mean, look, that really is the challenge. When you have a conversation with someone about home birthing or birth outside the hospital, you are really in a very intimate way, in a way that I can't imagine any other other scenario sort of could rival uh, the intimacy of that situation. Uh, Again, someone's comfort level in that scenario my gosh i mean you can you can show them stats you can you can show them the way you can tell them the way but uh but they've got to be comfortable and you know look you've made the point many times the person who's coming around the second time the third time uh they're having their third baby that's different than uh, obviously uh, a first time person outside of a hospital environment where their comfort level uh is they're not in their comfort zone yeah. Well, I would tell you that, you know, if you talk to any any midwife who's been practicing for a while, they'll tell you that their transport rate for first-time moms, probably about 15%, their transport rate for women who are having more than one baby, which is called a multip, mm. uh, is probably less than 1%. Uh, because once they've done it, now that, that, that would not be the same in a hospital setting. I mean, uh, the, the C-section rate for first-time moms in a hospital setting is over 20%. In the midwifery model, it's less than 7%. And so... Really, what's the difference? We're talking about apples to apples here, other than the place that uh, the only difference is, is the model and place by which they're where they're cared for and how they're cared for. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would love to see the midwifery model of care be instituted in a hospital setting. More midwives working in hospitals, more collaboration between midwives and physicians is the best way to go. Midwives are great and should be taking care of normal normal pregnant women. Doctors should be only called in. When there's problems, that's the way it would work. But the, but the economic way the model is set up, the medical legal way it's set up, the expediency way it's set up, those sorts of things do not favor doctors collaborating with midwives um, in, in today's model. It's just the reimbursement rates are just too low. Uh, you can't give an individual patient that much time based on what you're getting from you know, from uh, Medi-Cal or Blue Cross or Blue Shield. You, you, know, you can't do that, and doctors don't want to give up the normal births to the midwives, uh, unless you're in a group like Kaiser, which here is a big HMO in California, they, they have a better model because midwives generally take care of the low-risk patients at some of the Kaisers. Some of the Kaisers don't have midwives all the time, and that's a problem. Right. They still have the shift mentality, and, and, and I still believe that, you know, obviously my lifestyle is different than most obstetricians, but I do believe that, that obstetrics is one of those things that really shouldn't be on a shift. It's like... It's like having open heart surgery on a shift. You're halfway through the surgery. Got to go. And your one <laughs> surgeon has to go and another one has to come in. I mean, who would ever think of that? Uh, right. Uh, 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 scare, uh, scare you to death. 
Uh, really, I'm not. Uh, no pun intended. Right. Uh, you know, but, but it's interesting the, the way people view the sort of a, the the familiarity with home birth is one thing, and just sort. Of, I'll tell you an interesting story that before we stepped in the studio here, we are by the way uh, doing Doctor Stu's podcast number seventy one from the seldom used Studio D right here at CRN, and uh, we have Paul Stern with us who's he's just watching us to make sure we don't screw anything up or, or make sure nothing breaks. Ge- was, genius. He's, he's a, a genius, genius by he's the a, way. He's he an electronic genius. He is. He is. He is. I was talking. I'm very impressed out in the hallway to a, a young guy who works here at crn his name is jose and he said hey brian you know what do you, <laughs> he said what are you doing here today i said oh I, I didn't introduce you to my friend dr Stu." and he said no it's, i said yeah that's dr Stuart fishbein and we're doing a, we do a podcast together it's called dr Stu's podcast i go you know download he said oh okay he said what's it about he's a young guy jose is jose 22 am i about right okay he said so what's your podcast about i said oh, i said well dr Stu delivers catches babies home outside of the hospital and he said oh and i could see him <laughs> i, I, I he, you know he hadn't heard about i could see him yeah. you know the wheels start turning right mm-hmm. and i he started to consider it and then we had some other small talk about uh hockey or whatever it was about sports and then i could tell he definitely wanted to come back to this subject because there was a lot he didn't know uh as i didn't know before i started having this uh, uh meeting with you and doing this well, podcast yeah as most as most people as don't, most people, people don't, don't right know. so he said to me he said, they have to listen to dr Steve's podcast he said often. brian can i ask you a question i said sure jose you can ask me anything he said he said <clears> so uh so that uh that birthing outside the hospital he said at home so was it like he comes in a van he shows up like in a van sets everything up and everything <laughs> Yeah, mobile, mobile van. I like the Dr. Well, Stu home birthing mobile unit. And I said, uh, uh, I said not exactly, you know, Jose. That's my, my dream, Brian, is to have a fleet of Dr. <laughs> Stu home birthing mobile vans across the country. You know, you can, you know, it's like Uber. You have an app and you push an app. We need a Dr. Stu mobile van over well, here right away. Home birth app. Not a terrible idea. No, but, I, but I just think it's funny because it really, in some ways it is like that. My, I basically, it's, my stuff is in my trunk. Right, right. It's not like we deliver in the back of the truck, but I take things out of my trunk and we go in the house. But it is, it is like a mobile. Well, you know what else? I, I found myself, Stu, I found myself wrestling in the moment with Jose in the conversation. I was for a moment wrestling with his very understandable and very common lack of familiarity with the concept of home birth he just didn't know you know you know it's a you know impression of you know uh you know here comes the doctor in a van and sort of you know sets up the equipment and here we go and i i smiled and sort of laughed a little bit because his his lack of familiarity uh is certainly understandable and predictable yeah but you know what he he actually nailed it sort of (laughs) You know, in his, in his, in his, what you think was so-called ignorance, he basically well, said, it, so what is he, he comes to the house and he brings the stuff. Yeah. I said, yeah, yeah well, I did say, yeah, you know, I mean, you have to bring the, 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 the that's right. woman to, and the baby. That's right. That's uh, right. The, you have to bring the pregnant woman and we bring the stuff. That's right. And you deliver the, you catch the baby. You catch the baby. You catch the baby. Right. Okay. So he's right. So or he could catch the baby. He could catch the baby too, we, right? Yeah, we, we can help him catch the uh, baby. By the way, do you get that a lot from partners who say, you know what? I'd like to be a. Do, do you get partners, Dr. Stu, who say, I'd like to be a larger part of this than I had anticipated? Uh, or is well, yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I don't think so, Brian, because we, we again, part of the of the model is that we discuss these things in their prenatal visits. So mm-hmm. it really isn't a sh- – birth doesn't really come as a shock to most of the fathers that are there. They are generally well, well prepared. prepared. Right, yeah. Uh, obviously, we'll, as we go along, we might say, yeah, did you change your mind? Do you think you want to come down here? you want to catch the baby? Do you want to – Yeah, and I guess that's my question. If in the moment people find they want to participate more or a little fear creeps in and they'd rather be on the sidelines. Uh, 
I've seen both. I think sometimes I'll say, oh, come on down here. Come on. Here. Baby's about ready to come on. Come on. Oh, no. No. <laughs> Dr. Stu. That would I'll be me. I'll stay here. That would be me. I'll stay here. I'll, yep. support my, I'll, I'll support my wife's head. Right. 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 And <laughs> I'll y- stay at this end. Interesting. Right. But you, you, yeah. you see both reactions, of course. Yeah. And some people want to get, uh, excuse the metaphor, the phrase, down and dirty. Right. They do. They want to get down in there and they want to be the first person to put their hands. You know, we're wearing gloves. So they're actually the mother or the father are truly the first person that touches their baby with skin. So we never touch the baby with our skin until until after, you know, way later during the during the newborn exam. I don't know if I've ever asked you, but, uh, okay, mom and dad or mo- mom and partner. Uh, beyond that, third people, fourth people, you know, uh, mo- mother-in-law, grandma. Uh, do you ever see scenarios where, you know, you forgive the term where guests are invited over where where other you know come on you know the neighbors come in i mean i'm I'm not trying to be funny but where it's really just more than mom and dad or mom and partner and there and you might have half a dozen people there uh you know yeah yeah i mean usually not neighbors but but their birth should be in my opinion a very private thing and and uh in some some people in my profession who are luminary think that the father shouldn't even be in the room but Mm. But that's not sort of the way we do it here in the United States. Serious question. If he's not in the room, where do they think he should be? Smoking a cigar. In Outside the- or something? <laughs> no, really? No. no, really, truly. Yeah. yeah. They think it's a, you know, and again, they would actually argue that uh, it, you know, that even my presence is somewhat detrimental. Right. To, uh, to that. And I, and I, I'm the first to admit when I see a new client who's interviewing me, I say, listen, I have, I'm a guy. I have guy energy. Uh-huh. I try to stay out of your room. I tend to have a little bit of a booming voice, uh-huh. even when I whisper. You might not I know, he- but I do a podcast. But I, <laughs> I, I, that wasn't me, by the way. Uh, no, but I understand you try to right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I say, listen, I'm going to probably be in the other room most of the time. I'll come in periodically, but I try to keep my energy out of there. So if somebody wants to have their sister and their mother and their mother-in-law, and uh, yeah, that's fine. It's their choice as long as they're prepared for that. And I've beautiful births sometimes with a whole gathering of people. Um, one of my friends, uh, I don't remember if she was on the podcast or not. Daisy, did we have Daisy on the podcast? I think we did. Yeah. Well, Daisy, she had probably, there were probably 15 people in the room when she gave birth. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. And a lot of them were kids. Wow. That's what she wanted. She wanted that to be a bonding, unifying thing with her family. It was almost sort of like a party atmosphere. And quite frankly, I've told you before that, that the, the most common reason why people home birth is because they've been exposed to it somewhere in their past. Right. Uh, less people get it from just reading or talking to friends, but most people home birth, they were either home birth or their sister home birth, their mother birthed them at home. Uh, they've, they're involved with it in somehow, and they, and they feel safe and comfortable with it. For more information, more experiences about the home birthing experience, there is here on the website, drstewspodcast.com. Uh, this is Podcast 71. So if you're just joining us here in 2015 uh, for the second podcast of the year, Happy New Year. There are 70 hours, even more, of podcasts that you haven't heard that are all right here on the page. We encourage you to go to iTunes, subscribe to Dr. Stu's podcast on iTunes. You'll get an alert. You'll never miss a podcast. And, of course, like the Facebook page. Check out the blog. And it's always great to see you. Appreciate it very much. And uh, we will certainly see you next time. If you want to email Dr. Stu, he answers every single email. Ask Stu at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us. For Dr. Stuart Fishbein, I'm Brian Whitman. See you next time. We'll see you next time on Dr. Stu's podcast. <laughs>